Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. We all want to travel faster than light. We all want to go to another part of the universe at another time instantly. But so far, we still can't do it. Life sucks, and then you die. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids, and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Greetings, greetings, greetings. Uh, Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where, dare I say it, Science Rules. It's a call-in show. So if you want to be on the show, call in. If you see what I'm driving at there, uh, make sure to check my social handles. You know, the kids use the gram, the tweeter, the the booking of face. And uh, we will uh, get your question on the air. And as always, uh, you can send your questions or comments to askbillnye.com. Askbillnye.com, all together, one wordified. And I am once again joined, of course, I know you're all as excited as I am, by science writer, editor, and I'll just tell you, dear friend, oh, Bill. Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, hello, Bill. Always good to be here. You know, I was thinking it would be so cool if Albert Einstein were still around and we could have him on the show. Uh, but last I checked, he's not available. But what we do have is somebody who's one of Einstein's spiritual successors, and it's very cool. A spiritual successor. A spiritual successor. We, yes, can, even, we can even get into that those terms if we want. I hope so, because we are joined by none other than Ford Foundation physics professor and affiliate professor of mathematics at Brown University, Dr. Sylvester James Gates. But we, we just call you Jim. Yeah? Please, please, yeah, Jim please. Gates. <laughs> And his latest book is Proving Einstein Right. Uh, welcome to Science Rules, Jim. Very excited to have you uh, here. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, thank you. You know, you, you, you're talking about Albert Einstein in that sense. Most, most people do not know that I was asked to portray Albert Einstein. In fact, it's on YouTube. I did it for the Jewish Museum of New York about five years ago. So hang on a second. Yes, what sir. would you do in the character? Well, sir, you know, I would be talking with a tiny little bit of an accent and hunching forward a little bit more than is normal for me. And 
It was wonderful. Did you, but did you try to change your thought process to sort of think, how would Einstein be thinking and reacting in this situation? Well, I didn't have to change it because it turns out that in 2005, we physicists all over the world celebrated Albert Einstein in something called the Einstein World Year of Physics. That year, I gave 37 talks on six continents about Albert Einstein. <laughs> I had read extensively, had an Albert Einstein library. So it wasn't that I had to change my thought. I just had to remember what I read. So that's all kind of jammed in your brain somewhere. It really is. It actually changed me, my views profoundly of who and what Albert Einstein was. Wow. So you had one view of Albert Einstein and it changed. What is it that changed? Yes. So the first time I ever seriously engaged Albert Einstein was in, when I was 16 years old. I was taking a physics course in high school. I had this super tremendous teacher named Mr. Freeman Coney, and I learned special relativity when I was in 11th grade. Wow. And so I was just overwhelmed that human minds had the capacity to think thoughts like that. So I, that went along for a long time in my life, that Albert Einstein was just this amazing, almost superhuman, superhero guy out here, you know, forging a path through science. Uh, when I uh, got to my 30s and 40s, I found out even more about the guy, that he was an outspoken uh, uh, representative for civil rights for African Americans in the 40s and 50s, long before anybody else was saying really very provocative things. He was out there and saying them. And the thing that I learned about Albert Einstein was he was incredibly consistent in the way he worked. You know, we think of him as a genius, but he had a methodology for how he got to be a genius. His work in 1905, which we were celebrating, started in his mind 10 years earlier uh, when he was 15 years old. And so his greatest contributions all come out of this, what he called a distillation of common sense. And that was one thing. The other thing I came to understand about him was he was not this, this figure beyond humanity, that he had his foibles. I, I learned, you know, learned about his personal life, which was quite messy. Um, I learned that— um, What makes your personal life messy? Women? In his case, yes. Yeah. In his case, very much yes. If, if I you may just say yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so that started changing my view. And then finally at the end of the day, uh, what just sort of happened is I've been doing physics since uh, I got my PhD in 1977. I've known some of the world's greatest physicists. I've interacted with Stephen Hawking, for example. First time I met him was 1980. Uh, last time I saw him He was got to meet you, Okay. <laughs> I was a young kid. There's actually a p picture uh, that people often find online of me uh, at uh, at Cambridge in 1980. I'm standing up right behind Stephen, who's sitting in a chair. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of you on the internet in a good way. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so at the end, watching these great physicists of my generation and thinking about Albert Einstein, I started to get confused about things that other people are not confused about. So, for example, one of the things that I have been given to thinking recently is that genius is actually not a noun, it's a verb. And because it's it's kind of a complex set of interactions that define genius. Uh, and not all, and genius is not a constant state of mind. There are some people who can perform these extraordinary leaps of imagination, intuition, uh, sort of more than others, but nobody does it. Hold on, so I'd, I'd love to hear your definition of genius or sort of what those, what those ah, components my, are. Yeah, yeah, so uh, th this is something someone asked me maybe 15 years ago, and I came up with the following. Genius is the ability to uh, to create order and form out of seeming chaos and ignorance and darkness. And that order and form can be not just in math or physics. It could be in dance where you have a genius performing sculpting space because that's what dancers do with their bodies is they basically sculpt the space around them. You can have it in music. So genius is, a, is quite ubiquitous. It's not just about science. 
So hang on. This, I think, we'll start right there. Uh-oh. And we'll take a question because I think this question will – it's it's part of what you're talking about. Uh, Elijah, are you out there? Yeah. Uh, where are you calling from? Lexington, Kentucky. Ah, uh, Kentucky. Fabulous. Excellent. Beautiful, beautiful part of the world. What is your question for Dr. Gates? So I was wondering why you thought or why you thought uh, Albert Einstein was the greatest scientist or why he is overrated. Because I think he, I think he's a good scientist. However, I just think he is a little overrated at the end of the day. Well, first of all, I don't, I've never said I thought he was the greatest scientist. But however, I don't think he was overrated either. If you delve deeply into what he was able to do, because of Albert Einstein, we know our universe had a beginning about 13.7 billion years ago. In the time since then, amazing transformations of matter, energy, space, and time have uh, occurred. We get a, a part where the universe first assembles atoms. When it's 370,000 years old, the universe takes its own baby picture, and we can see that to this very day is something called the cosmic microwave background. And yet, in all this transformation of matter, energy, space, and time, and mir miraculous wonders, the universe creates exactly one copy of you, as far as we can tell. That speaks to a kind of preciousness for every single human being. No other scientist gave us such a view of our reality. Wow. That is a wow moment. That's pretty cool. So, so Elijah, thank you, man. Thank you. That was a great question. So, so what was it? That was so unusual about Einstein. I mean, you were touching on this before a, a little bit about you know, what it was about his thought process that was different than the way other scientists were thinking. Well, the thing that I, I think all of us uh, who studied him uh, put at the top of that list was his ability to use Gundunkin experiments, thought experiments, w with sort of pure active mind to become so intimately uh, familiar with Mother Nature that you can see a pathway to explain questions that other people don't even know are there. But here's my understanding that Einstein was thinking, wait a second, let's say that the speed of time is not constant. And then let's just do the algebra. Let's just say this this rate is not constant, something that would never occur to anybody. I mean, we have the expression time flies. <laughs> uh, we have the expression time drags on. But that it actually... The rate at which it goes by could change is pretty amazing. Well, I love the, the image of, like, what happens if you catch up with a beam of light? What do you and see? And that was his question at age 15. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. But, I suck. Know, yeah, and gravity also affects the, the, the flow of time. So, like, the time on the surface of the Earth and the time at the center of the Earth are slightly different. And the time up where your GPS satellites that drive your navigation uh, apps is different. And that's something that he, that had to be worked out if you were going to actually design the GPS. So the practical benefit of Albert Einstein is that we have all these navigation apps. Well, we have all, everything. But one of the things, you know, we're talking about the transformative, transformative moment for me, it, uh, uh, it was in my thinking about Einstein, but it came from looking at other great geniuses who are alive now. Geniuses have intellectual blind spots. Such as? Is there anybody you want to name? or, or is this? A... I, well, I don't want to embarrass any of my oh, okay. friends because I, I actually know some <laughs> of these folks. But geniuses can have intellectual blind I spots. I say all the time, I meet you, 
<laughs> you might be the exception, but I've spent time with Nobel laureates. Yeah, me too. These are not people you want teaching kindergarten. <laughs> Generally not. They're just, it's a different skill. It is. So go ahead. Geniuses have blind spots. Geniuses have blind spots. And that's to me, was an amazing discovery I made quite young in my young uh, as a scientist. And then I said, oh my good, that means there's hope for me to be successful. <laughs> because I, if I can get in a blind spot, I'm going to do something no one else can find. Science Rules will be right back. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. You're listening to Science Rules. You know, uh, talking more about me, I'm a mechanical engineer. We got three dimensions. We have we have four. We have time. Okay, I worked on four dimensional autopilots for a while. You want to get there when you're allowed to get there, not before, and right, so on. Right. All right. But you guys, and by you guys, I mean uh, theoretical physicists, have this whole other thing. We're going to add five, six, seven, eleven dimensions. So what, what, okay, what are you talking about? <laughs> and There's why? String why theory, are, right? why so are you doing it? We're yeah. trying to understand the nature of the universe. Right. I remember being amazed as an engineer working in the early days of, of integrated circuits. And the whole thing was to get down to 30 molecules. If you could make a silicon wafer 30 molecules thick. Okay, first of all, you have to believe in molecules. That's you have to right. believe that there is such a thing. Yeah. You have to believe that they interact. You have to believe that there's electrons and so on. And there's a lot of evidence for it, right? But then, then you go, well, well, the molecules are made of atoms, and, and the atoms are made of neutrons and protons, and they're made of quarks. And, and the and quarks are made of... Uh, uh, well, the quarks uh, might the quarks be made, made of... Something. Well, <laughs> then what happened? Okay, so what... What are you working on? What is string theory? Can you just well, – the show's only about 40 minutes. That's so okay. I've, I've explained th string theory in 30 seconds before, so I'm going to fall back on that explanation. Here All we, right. Here we go. You want to start a clock? 30 seconds. <laughs> Starting now. Okay. So take a, take a yardstick, cut it in 10 equal pieces, throw away nine key points. You go for something as long as yardsticks or something in that is about the span of your hand. Take that object, take, cut it in 10 equal pieces, throw away nine key points. You can get down to the size of your thumbnail, essentially. How many times do you have to do that to get to the atom? The answer turns out to be 10. How many times do you have to do that to get to the nucleus? The answer turns out to be 15. So we've been asking the question, if you keep doing this process and get down to, say, 35 times, is there anything left in the universe reasonable? Do we think the answer is yes? We call them strings. They're like filaments. 
Oh, well, there you go. Wow. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. <laughs> That's so, our so, show. So, yeah, pretty much the, uh, we've got everything answered now. Uh, so, here, so okay. hang on. Yes. A, a filament. Yeah. So, so far, I think a lot of people, especially people who listen to this show, are all about particles. Yes. Right? We have a, we have a molecule. We have an atom. We have proton, neutron, electron. And then we've got, let's say, quarks. And we got photons. And exotic things. We've got photons and we neutrinos. Got photons. And... we got some tau mesons. All right. So what – we're going to go from particles to filaments. Sure. And the uh, – the so if you do the mathematics, it's pretty straightforward. However, most people in the world don't do mathematics. They think in other, lang- uh, other terms. So let me try it this way. If you think about a filament, it's like a violin string. What can you do with a violin string? How about plucking it? If you pluck a violin string, you can actually produce many different notes. So the particles that we see in fundamental physics are like, are to the string as notes are to a violin string. Namely, they're the vibrations of the string that look like particles to us. So all the particles are made of the same essential thing, the string, that's, and it's the vibration mode that makes it one thing that or another. Is, that's exactly okay. okay but a filament or a string of what? Uh-huh. This is, what, this is I know, where a lot of people I know, I because, get stuck. Because often people like to say, oh, a string is a collection, is a filament, perhaps are made of energy. No, that's not right because you see, uh, since... Okay, string, say that again. What is it not? It is not a, a filament, it is not energy. A, a string is, is not, not energy. energy. Yeah, which is a mistake I often see in popular discussions of string theory. Well, it just seems intuitively like it would be. Well, that's because, that's because energy is the output of the string, not the input. That's why you can't say that strings are energy. They're, energy is what comes from strings. So you, if you ask this question, what is a string? The only answer that I can tell you is, A, I know it's a mathematical entity. And B, it seems to have the property of describing the equations that we physicists have been going back and discovering back to the time of Newton. Oh, so hang on. Is, um, is light uh, energy? Light is, carries energy, and it's a particular vibration of a string. And so a photon would be a vibration of a string. A particular mode of vibration of a string. Okay. Is it a string? Is it quantized like that? Because one of the charming amazo things, speaking of mm-hmm. Albert Einstein— is uh, that light is quantized, that it's in particles, it's a discrete packets. We have been struggling with the idea of quantizing string theory since its birth, and guess what, guys? We haven't succeeded yet. That's a relief. <laughs> no, yeah. because I, you know, I'm not no, no. in your league, but I listen to it, and I, well, no, no, it that, seems that, incomplete. That's the deepest question in string theory, and it's a question that's so deep, most, in my opinion, most theorists haven't actually figured out that question. There are only a couple of people in the world I know who have been wrestling with the idea of quantizing strings. One of them is Edward Witten at Princeton. Another is uh, someone whose PhD thesis I supervise, a, a young, uh, he's no longer so young, but a professor named Barton Zwiebach, who is at MIT, uh, and a few other people have worked on the quantization of strings. But no one has a complete story there yet. Okay, so hang on. Light is quantized. We can measure a packet of light. You can measure a packet of energy carried by a photon. So a packet of energy carried by a photon. And that's part of what Einstein... Did in 1905. That's part of what he got. Yeah, that's what he actually got the Nobel Prize for that. Yeah, yeah, you can't get a Nobel Prize for a theory. It has to be a discovery. Not for a piece of mathematics. Yeah, yeah. So, so hang on. So, we the photon is a manifestation of something more fundamental. Yes, and that more fundamental thing behaves in some ways like a pluckable string. The mathematics of the object are like the mathematics of a pluckable string. 
Okay. Cool. Now we're getting somewhere. All right. Now. <laughs> but let me surprise you folks, perhaps. Right, this, arrest, this has been uh, yeah, very because straightforward. Because so, so far, now, yeah, yeah. nothing you've said has been surprising, <laughs> so I'm waiting for the surprise. <laughs> Another manifestation of a different vibration string is space itself. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, okay. You know, we have a caller. Oh, I think we, do? We, have, we have a caller. <laughs> okay. I think we have Brian on the phone. Uh, Brian, are you there? I am. Brian, excellent. Uh, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Bangor, Maine. Bangor, Maine, here in the United States. Uh, Fabulous. Uh, I was just in Augusta about two months ago. Oh. Co- coincidence? <laughs> I doubt Actually, it. yes. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> <is a> Actually, no. <laughs> so go ahead, Brian. What's your question? So my question is, is this is something I've been thinking about since I graduated high school back in 2012. Um, I have been told since I was a little kid that space is a vacuum. Um, and space being a vacuum means that, you know, to my understanding, nothing can exist in there. Um, but yet we have many, many particles that explode, supernovas, all kinds of things that happen out in the vastness of space. So to sum that question up, where does that material and matter go? It's a great question. How can something be in nothing? There are two ways that we know that space is not a nothing. One of the ways is actually LIGO and gravitational waves because nothing can't make waves. In okay, fact, explain, explain. A LIGO and gravitational waves. That's very straightforward. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. can we, you expand we, on of that? Of course we know, but uh, we're just asking you if, <laughs> yeah. if you know just to make sure. Well, actually, I've been watching LIGO since 1985 when it was just being developed, and it's been wonderful. So, LIGO, everybody, is... Uh, Laser is it? Interferometry Gravitational Wave Observatory. Yeah. It's a two giant facilities, uh, one in Louisiana, one in Washington State. Correct. Watches for... Tiny vibrations. Ripple, ripples in space. space time. Exactly. That's what they were designed yeah. to do. So uh, that is probably the most forceful piece of evidence I can give you, that space is not a nothing. But in fact, the, the Greeks actually... <laughs> knew this. If you look, go back and study Greek philosophy, you'll see that one of the arguments about space being an absent is you can't move through nothing. So it's got to be something. The other part of the answer I would tell you is because of quantum mechanics, we know that even if you try to take all the particles out of a region of space, there are quantum fluctuations. And so something appears there as if spontaneously, perhaps for an incredibly short time, but it is not just empty. So we know of no perfect vacuum in nature if you look at quantum field theory. Uh, there, uh, Brian, is that, is that helping? So space is <laughs> not, <definitely> is not, <laughs> the word vacuum is more of a laboratory <clears throat> idea, right? It is, and it, it's typically. Suck all the molecules That's out. exactly the issue about sucking the stuff out of the, a region. That's where we talk about of a vacuum. Typically, it's sucking air molecules out of a region. But when you go out in space, like I said, you can't stop quantum mechanics. So it can put stuff there when you're not looking. Uh, strings, energy. Something, uh, energy manifested by something else that right now, today, we're calling strings. Strings, that's right. Yeah. Now, no, wait, you were starting to say, uh, before, we got, great before, we got, before we got Brian on the line, you were starting to say that, that strings might not just cr- be creating particles, but they might be creating space itself? That is correct. So, I feel like this is the time to start to understand what you mean by that. Well, I meant exactly that. That space and time, since Einstein teaches us they're sort of the same thing, those two are vibrations of strings. And so the model of the string is that it is the ultimate author of everything in our universe, including space and time. Before we get deeper into this, uh, we have a science class. We have a science class. Science class on the line. 
And I feel like we need to have this science class on the show, too. Yes, Ooh. yes. I'm sorry to go off on a thing there, science class. I'm sorry, Bill. Didn't mean to set you off. No, no. It's, uh, I think it's part of the charm. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So, uh, Jason, are you the science teacher? I am. Uh, what, what grade are you teaching or what class are you teaching? I have 11th and 12th grade AP physics Students in all, all right. So, did they call you Jason, or do they call you Mister Something, or Doctor Mister Mister Doherty? Mister Doherty. So, Mister okay. Doherty and your class, you have a question. We do. Um, I was actually going to talk about LIGO today with the kids, and then I saw your tweet about Einstein and relativity. So, the question we came up with is: like, we know gravity waves is one of the last big discoveries. Got to got to um, say, if we're trying to be disciplined. It's gravitational waves. <laughs> I'm not oh, joking. Yeah, yes. no, he's like, no, you know, when we're talking, actually, about, yeah. we're talking about climate change and, and uh, trying to understand the patterns that are, seem to make storms linger, those are connected with what we believe, what were generally called gravity waves. So I just like to get in the habit of gravitational waves. Take it, yes, Mr. B- Doherty. B- Bill and I actually halted the production yeah. of his TV show <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because somebody said, just trying yeah, to have, just, said, it's, said gravity waves you know, instead of gravitational in, waves. <laughs> words include more than they leave out. But but, uh, but, but sorry, back, back to you and your class. Gravitational waves, take it. I was just corrected by Bill Nye. I love it. One, one of my dreams has come true. We're, we're just trying to get in the okay, habit perfect. of not lumping the two things together. Go ahead, go ahead. So gravitational waves, we know that was one of the last major predictions that Einstein's general theory of relativity had that had been left, left to be proven still, and that was proven just a few years ago. Are there any other major predictions that Einstein's theory of relativity oh, has that we're, we're still searching for? That is fantastic. What a great, great question. Great question. Um, and we have the guy to answer it. Well, I'm not sure if I'm the guy. Yeah, you are. We have a guy. <laughs> That's Go ahead, Jim. Uh, Mr. Doherty, I'm sorry to disappoint yes. you in your class, but as to my awareness, that was the last big question. The only, There is one tiny question, however, which we have not uh, answered, and that is, are these gravitational waves like light waves and carry energy in quanta? Because that we don't know yet. Yeah, are you guys, put another way, are you all going to find a graviton? That's exactly equivalent, Bill. Uh, so, you know, I'm a Star Trek fan. It'll be like we have seen the gravitons they talk about on Star Trek. And then if you see a graviton, what will that tell you? Well, give, first of all, it'll give us a lot of confidence that we're not crazy. Okay, that's, all, that's good. That, that's something you always have to do a self-check with nature. And it's, science is all about a conversation with nature. And the nature is so complicated, it's easy for us humans to get it wrong. So we need to have verification. So that's one thing. Is that knowing gravitons there, we get verifications. The other thing then will uh, be, a, once we know that, it's going to be a really big push to say, what is the mathematics of these quantized energy-carrying gravitons? Because that mathematics doesn't exist completely. Right. We have no quantum theory of gravity. We have no complete theory of quantum gravity. So it will well, we push don't the have theorists. the theory of everything yet. That's right. We don't. So Mr. Doherty's uh, class, who knows what the future is for you all? It's amazing. Stick around for more science rules after this. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, 
and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Science Rules is back. Hey, we've got another caller on the line. Yeah, and you're, uh, who's calling? Uh, we have Isabel. Isabel, are you there? Hello. Oh, yeah. Isabel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Where are you calling from? New York, New York. Ah, the town's so nice, they named it twice. And uh, mm-hmm. what is your question? So I was just wondering, since you're on the topic of Einstein, you know, um, if you had any opinions on your contemporaries, if you thought that there is like a modern day Einstein or who the next Einstein is going to be. Well, predicting uh, the next Einstein is, is a losing proposition. Uh, Mother Nature is, uh, and time and the universe and providence and all these mysterious words, only that in that domain could one make the prediction. So I, I can't predict the next Albert Einstein. Um, well, there is, there is a question. People ask, you know, is the way science is done today, would it, could there even be another Einstein? Is it, is it so I, complicated and no, so no, distributed? No. You think I'm, there no, could no, be? No, no, I absolutely think there could be. Because if you look at the way Einstein actually worked, his genius is not that he was a better mathematician than the people around him. Because he wasn't. There were people who were far more uh, accomplished mathematicians. In fact, even his great theory of gravity probably was invented a few days or weeks earlier than he did by a mathematician named David Hilbert. So that wasn't his strength. His strength was the it was this crystalline perception of how the math and the reality could be tied together. And that is an ability that is almost like uh, someone who can do art. So that's what we need uh, to solve our problems, not someone who's like a super computer who who can just go ahead and just take the math and bang on tables and get answers to come out. We need someone that has that act of crystalline clarity. But is is there anybody who you talk to today or when you, when you when you're with them you think oh this person has that some of that quality of mind there are numbers of people i know uh, i think most people in my community will tell you that the most prominent and distinguished mathematical physicist of my generation is a man named edward witten who, who the public mostly has never heard of uh, you mentioned him earlier i did indeed ed, i've known ed since 1975 i've he, he's a he's a friend uh, his family and my family have done some things together when my kids were little and his were little. Uh, but he is absolutely, his mind is just, uh, the first time I met Ed, I, I was afraid I had chosen the wrong business. <laughs> and it wasn't until I figured out geniuses have blind spots, I said, I- I'll be okay. Because he was the one who who came up with some of the fundamental ideas of string theory. Absolutely he is. Absolutely. So we have another caller. So uh, thank you, Isabel. Thank you. Uh, someone's calling from overseas. Uh, who is it? Um, hello, uh, my name is Ignace. I am calling from Belgium. Oh, great. Oh, where, where in Belgium? Uh, in Belgium, Vatran. The best is food there is. Kent. The best food there is. So, yes, take it. It is. We do have good food. Now, I saw your tweet on Einstein and is he the greatest uh, scientist? And with regards to relativity and our inability to exceed the speed of light, uh, are we going to be able to create a different type of uh, uh, propulsion system that um, sidesteps 
the speed of light restrictions such that we can actually travel to other stars in a human time frame? Well, that's a great question. Now you're talking. Yeah, yeah that's a great question. And I have to, give you the, have to give you the answer that I've told people for years. Um, in order to travel faster than the speed of light, Albert Einstein at some level is going to have to be falsified because it's his math that puts that speed limit on us. The first person who finds the alternative version of mathematics that's consistent with the universe, uh, that will then go and say, gee, I can build a starship. That person is going to have to be working on something like the equations of string theory. And since none of us have a complete picture even of that, I have no way of answering your question. Well, what about wormholes? That's the sort of like the, the hand-waving answer that always yeah. comes up in the science fiction stories. Yeah. Is, that a, is that a physically real thing? It turns out that if you look deeply in the mathematics of wormholes, there's this one sort of problem. It's negative energy. In order to create wormholes consistent with the laws that Albert Einstein gave us, you have to have this stuff that's negative energy. We're, we're not even sure what it is, or we certainly don't know whether it exists. And so uh, if you had some way to tell me you had negative energy, I would say, fine, sign me up for your starship tomorrow. So, <laughs> so hang on. This would be a situation where energy would not be there, uh, that somehow energy could leave a space or a space-time, and there'd be a a place in space-time with no energy, sort of? It's more a little bit more complicated than that, but the, if the only, the closest things that general relativity give us that allow us to construct wormholes demand a form of energy, you know, it's math, right? It's just math. So you look at the math and you look at what it says and you want this configuration of the wormhole, you find out that the sign that you call energy has to be the one that's different from our usual sign. That's what we can tell you. Okay, well, yeah, so here's the other thing that comes up all the time in the science fiction stories, tachyons. Yes. Is, okay, is, well, that, is, is, that, is that a real concept? Is that a real thing? First of all, tachyons is a real math, a physical, theoretical physics math concept. In fact, it, it, it is in fact at the foundation of why strings or technically super strings came into existence. The first generation of strings were actually built in the 60s. They are mathematically inconsistent because they contain tachyons. So it's a real... And tachyon is a particle that moves backward in time? A tachyon is a particle that has... whose mass, when you square it, is still a negative number. Ah! Ah! Yeah, sure. Well, sure. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's a so-called imaginary number. Yeah, yeah. So... My know. whole world, you know, in control systems, <laughs> autopilots, is based on imaginary numbers, right. people. I have a whole imaginary life, but we don't need to get into that. Yeah, so the, so the point is that Tachyons are real, and in, in, in the real in the sense of mathematics. However, if you admit tachyons, you run into all kinds of problems like probabilities that might be negative or greater than one. So if you're going to say that quantum mechanics requires probability, you don't want tachyons. Probabilities greater than one. Yeah, wow. what does that mean? It's something to do with the New York Knicks losing. <laughs> I don't know. So tachyons are <laughs> problematic in physics. Okay, so I, I think we've sort of answered your question, or at least we've answered your question as well as we can, that, that – uh, Time travel is not possible with the physics we know, but we don't know what comes That's not beyond. Possible, right. We all want to travel faster than light. We all want to go to another part of the universe at another time instantly, but so far we still can't do it. Life sucks, um, and then you die. Well, I, I'm, I'm actually glad that people are not going into my past and, and like changing, messing with causality. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Corey. 
Do you see the clouds on the horizon? I do. It's, it's, it's getting dark. I feel rain. I hear thunder. It's the lightning round. That's exactly right, my friend. So here we go, Jim. Okay. Jim, are you ready for we lightning We ask you strike? questions, and our dream is that we get uh, a quick answer. Yeah, that's our dream. Let's try. Here we go. When will we see another relativity level discovery in physics? My guess is about 100 years. 100 years, one century. There we go. What's one thing about Einstein that most people misunderstand? That Albert Einstein started his career talking about gravity by making an error. By making a mistake? Yes. And what was that mistake? Um, He didn't correctly predict how light would be bent around the sun. Uh, He predicted it incorrectly? Yes. But then this famous day where everybody goes and looks he, at Mercury. And he, had a, he had a factor of two error, if I'm remembering that right. That is exactly right. We yeah. explore that in our book. Yeah. Okay. Next question. What is one thing that annoys you about Einstein? What bugs you? Uh, the most annoying thing about Albert Einstein to me was his lack of consideration for the women in his life. What? Uh, so he t- did not treat them respectfully? Or he didn't treat else? his first wife respectfully at all. Nor... <laughs> You should go look for some of the things his brothers say about him and women. I mean, this guy was, in the modern vernacular, he was a dog. A dog. A dog. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite particle, subatomic particle? Uh, my favorite subatomic particle is the super partner to the W boson. Its name is spelled W-I-N-O. And so wino. I have, the wino. That's right. That's why yeah. it's my favorite. Yeah. And does it exist? Uh, we don't know yet. We could we tried to find evidence at the LHC. So far, we've not seen anything. So you've been looking around for winos, and you just can't find them. At the well, unless, I come to New, unless I come to right, New York, right. I'm sure. Yeah. I could. Uh, we have a uh, trace percentage. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite force, physical force out there? Gravitation. That's Why a good is that? Because it is a pathway to understanding the structure of everything, us, the universe, the whole thing. Are there implications for string theory right now that are affecting us in our everyday life? None that I know of, Bill. None really? That I know. Yeah. Except you're looking for the next answer, the next secret of the universe. Well, that's the only effect that I can do. Well, that is pretty good. I mean, this is something that fills me with reverence every day, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk with us. I have one last question. Sure. I want to ask you something about you. Okay. Now, I look at Corey, look at me. We are a product of just being born in the United States. I'm the dorkiest white guy you're ever going to meet. But you are from a little different ancestry, and you're playing in a league with a bunch of other white guys. Yeah. Did you, were you working against or with a lot of racism and coming up in the world of physics? Bill, my life has been really extraordinarily weird. My father was in the U.S. Army for 27 years, and that meant that, and I was born in 1950. And so, number one. You're a kid. You're a kid. Yeah, right, right. That means that I had a chance to grow up in diverse communities before the word existed. Because in the 1950s, the only place diversity existed was actually in the military. That's something people don't know. So that's item number one about the weirdness of my life. And you moved around, right? By the time I was in sixth grade, I had been in six different schools. All in the U.S. or overseas? Uh, All in the U.S. I was four years old and living in Canada before starting school when I discovered this thing called science and became absolutely convinced at that age that that's what I wanted to do with my life. So it's very organic with me. It's not that someone pushed me into doing this. I'm the first person in my family to go to college, and I got two bachelor's degrees in four years from MIT and then a Ph.D. four years later. 
I was a postdoc at Harvard for three years, and then I went to Caltech. I just flew in here from Caltech yesterday, and I just found out that apparently I was the first uh, African-American uh, postdoc in the mathematics, astronomy, and physics division they ever hired at Caltech. So for me, I try to tell people, yes, first of all, there's in, in my experience of the United States, uh, the issue of race is, uh, has always been present. Uh, race was designed in this country to de designate those who would receive benefits and those who would suffer degradations. That was in our initial concept of race in this country. Now, we've moved on to some degree, although it's a struggle still. But for me personally, I've always had this sense that there's something about the way my life was put together that made me a physicist, <laughs> that made me passionate about doing physics, and that there was a question out there in physics that had my name on it. And I, all I had to do was try to figure out what that question was and try to come up with the answer. But I'm absolutely convinced that the reason diversity is important is because different people are going to come up with different ideas. It's just like in music, you know. I love classical music, Bill, but I also love jazz and R&B, right? And without people thinking differently, we don't get R&B. So we're richer musically because you do that. I have a very strong suspicion that science will be richer when more people like me practice it. So I say all the time, by way of example, half the people in the world are women and girls. So let's have half the scientists and engineers be women for crying out loud. It will be different. And the other thing that, I mean, I never dealt with what you have dealt with your whole life, but people are more alike than they are different. That's just all that, I mean, as different as we seem to be, uh, it's literally skin deep. And so... I just think the future is bright, but man, we have a long way to go. It's and good. your leadership. Yeah. Well, you're, yeah, you were talking before about about blind spots, and I, uh, you know, I, I think you know. First of all, if you want to fill those blind spots, you want people with as many different ways of looking at the world as possible. But also, I mean, race is itself a, a blind spot for a lot of people. Yeah, but one of the marvelous things about science is that it tells us something philosophers have said for for millennia that we're all actually related. We know this from our genome. To me, the fact that I know that you are literally a relative of mine. That's, yes. This is just like mind-blowing. Oh, man. Everybody, we all have a common ancestor. Exactly. And a very, and everyone is very closely related. Yes. The, 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 genetic, the, more... the genetic diversity of, of, the, of Homo sapiens is tiny. Exactly. So we got squeezed, <laughs> squeezed through this, this, uh, this, this, this evolutionary well, keyhole. Val it was a valley of death. There was mm -hmm. a time when almost all humans on the planet died. Those survivors were our ancestors. Ancestors. Here we are, people. And hey, let's make something good of it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Gates, for <laughs> taking you. the what time. A fabulous discussion. It's been, Jim, it's just been cool. Before we go, let's promote your book. The name of the book is? Uh, Proving Einstein Right, co-authored with Kathy Pelletier, a novelist. And it's not your usual science book. It's actually written for every person, not just for those. Like listeners of science right. rules. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be 100 years. I think you guys are going to come up with something very cool with string theory before that. So, uh, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been a fantastic episode about string theory and the nature of the cosmos. I'm Bill Nye. I am Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the relativistic, filament-bound nature of the universe, science, science rules. rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, 
Please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show so that they, too, can turn it up loud. Thank you. Be sure to look at my socials, you know, my, uh, the gram, the booking of face, the tweeting, uh, for when to call into the show. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, a voicemail of all things, give us a call at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. Science Rules is produced by Claire Rawlinson and the very same Corey S. Powell. Yo. Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme music. Special thanks to Jordan Bell and Ashley Warren. Greetings. Daisy Rosaro is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the CCO, the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, as you all know, science rules. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.